Welcome back to Plato's Cave. With me today, I have Maximilian Keener. Max is a philosopher at the University of Oxford, and he specializes in moral and legal philosophy. His research focuses on consent, responsibility, and artificial intelligence, and he is currently writing a monograph on responsibility and artificial intelligence. So Max, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Great to be here. So we've got a lot on the docket for the discussion. I don't think we'll probably get to most of it because I was, I, we were talking over email or, or Twitter and I was, uh, I was kind of exploring a lot of your work and it's, it's very cool to see uh, you have a lot of popular pieces, but then also obviously, you know, academic articles. And I was kind of reviewing both of those. And, and I thought one thing that we might start with is a very kind of practical application of responsibility and ethics and, and what it's permissible to do. So you have this piece in the conversation uh, entitled COVID, is it okay to manipulate people into getting vaccinated? Which that article just opens the door to many, many exciting things. Um, but actually, b- before we dive into that, can I ask how, how did you find an interest in responsibility and, and ethics in these topics? Cool. Um, so I started with consent, and that's uh, was that was the topic of my PhD thesis. I was interested in our power to make things permissible that wouldn't otherwise be permissible. So the legal theorist Heidi Hurd once had this interesting phrase. So she said, "Consent has a moral magic." So it means there's something that's impermissible. Uh, then you give consent, and you turn it into permissible, like from black to white. So it's consent that makes the difference between, say, uh, trespass in a, in a dinner party, she says, and the difference between assault and, let's say, <laughs> proper medical care or physical intimacy that's permissible. And I like the idea of kind of being a magician or having this power over the moral landscape. That is, the rules aren't just fixed. So that was my way into the consent debate. And I was very interested in one particular requirement for real consent, valid consent. And that was that uh, consent has to be voluntary. So you can't be coerced, you can't be manipulated. In some way, and we have to explain what way that is, you have to give your consent freely. So that's kind of, that was my interest in consent and my um, uh, kind of PhD thesis, which uh, will come out as a monograph of Routledge soon. Um, um, and then at some point I realized there are actually interesting connections um, between consent and responsibility. Uh, in fact, it seems that they share three key conditions. So the first one you might think um, is competence or kind of the capacity for decision-making. So if you wanna give morally valid consent and if you wanna be morally responsible, you have to have certain mental capacities. Insanity, precludes consent, insanity precludes responsibility. But then also you might think both consent and responsibility, they require some kind of awareness, information or knowledge. So if there's kind of the big debate about the epistemic condition of responsibility and the question what types of ignorance uh, preclude or excuse a person, preclude responsibility or excuse a person. And in the context of consent, People often talk about the the requirement of informed consent, especially in the medical context. So again, it's kind of an interesting parallel. And finally, the point that I'm most interested in, that is voluntariness. If you curse someone, then it seems that this is a a really clear case where consent isn't valid, isn't doing the normative work. And if you curse someone to, let's say, committing a wrong, damaging property, that's also a good candidate for some kind of excuse. Mm. 
Mm. So I, kind of, I was kind of thinking, why is it that these two seemingly different things have the same conditions? And I um, just contributed, um, kind of wrote a paper for an anthology where I'm looking at these things and see what, why, are, why is this parallel the, the case? Why is it there? Uh, and what are the potential differences? Mm. That's super interesting. Yeah, I those those three. I totally share your your or I catch the intuition that those three kind of conditions or or aspects are branching between consent and responsibility. That's really interesting. Um, does that come up in? Will those kind of three branches come up in the monograph you're publishing? Um, so probably not. But I'm okay. I wrote a paper and I'm kind of so I was interested in uh, kind of the connection and the starting point is I think a very memorable case from uh, criminal law history. So in the 90s, there was this uh, case where uh, Robert Thompson and John Venables uh, murdered a two-year-old boy. But at that time, they were only 10 years old themselves. Uh, so that was an age uh, at which they would hardly have been able to give uh, legally valid consent to their own health care. But the authority considered them criminally responsible and actually made them the youngest convicted murderer since 20th century Britain. Um, and that, so that's quite an extreme case, but it illustrates, I think, a more general fact uh, that's still true. And that is that the age at which children become criminally responsible is often considerably lower than the age at which they become able to give um, legally valid consent to the healthcare, for instance, also other things. And, and studies found that actually in 80% of the countries worldwide um, that they reviewed that had um, defined ages of consent and responsibility, uh, the age of criminal responsibility was about uh, two to eight years lower than the age of consent. And that's, I think, quite interesting um, why that's the case, given that they in some way share conditions. Um, so I probably won't, won't be able to get into that in my um, kind of responsibility book now, but I, I had to write a paper, I think, because that asks for an explanation. I mean, obviously, um, the law might have very different reasons for organizing things in a certain way. Um, but I, I wondered whether there's some kind of moral rationale behind it, whether it's in some way justified that kind of responsibility for wrongdoing has a lower entry than kind of the valid validity requirements for consent. That's so interesting. Do you kind of at first glance, the thing that sticks out to me is the asymmetry between positive and negative morality there. So in the in the you know criminal responsibility, we there is that impulse for sort of retribution or or you know someone's just deserts. That that term is thrown around in the literature a lot. Whereas usually when we're talking about you know the age of consent, we are talking about consenting to things that are generally at least plausibly positive things. Um, do you think that that asymmetry plays a role? Yeah, I think that there has to be something that's relevant in, in that uh, kind of aspect. Um, maybe um, society has an interest that they want to send a clear signal to wrongdoers and I think they can't get away with it. Maybe that is something that plays a role. Um, there are certain certainly so-called retributivist interests that kind of many people think, and I think John Dana said this at some point, that we all have this interest in um, punishing those who transgress certain lines or violate certain norms. But then, yes, you're absolutely right. So when it's about consent, it's not about wrongdoing. 
It's about kind of enabling things that are ideally um, beneficial to the consent giver. Now, when you uh, authorize a medical procedure, uh, that's important for your health. Uh, when you authorize business transaction, ideally, that's mutually beneficial, um, and and so on. Um, and some people thought, um, kind of in in that area, there lies a difference because when you consent, um, you have to understand your own interests, uh, and you have to be um, cognitively more sophisticated um, to do that properly. But it's quite easy to understand that murdering someone else is bad. So that's a quite quite easy to understand, but it's much harder to understand what kind of medical treatment you should get. Hmm. Yeah, that that does that does make a lot of sense. And uh, you know, it strikes me that oftentimes when we often explicitly consent to being viewed in sort of a, a non-responsible way, or Strassen would say under the objective lens of the objective attitude. Um, and what one, you know, right from what you just said is when when I consent uh, to being operated on by a surgeon or evaluated by a psychiatrist or or even evaluated by, you know, uh, an admissions committee on a, on a graduate program, I am consenting to my own objectification there in a way that is, I, I think, I wonder if, if the, when, when I consent to my own objectification there, there has to be, it seems like I would never do that if there was not the possibility of some positive aspect coming out of it, right? Like I want to uh, have a tumor removed or, or I want to to have my psychiatrist psychiatrist tell me, you know, this is a pattern of destructive behavior, or or I'm hoping to get accepted to a graduate program. So it does that asymmetry seems to linger there as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I actually haven't thought about it that way, but you're right. Yeah. So when you kind of in these situations you consent, and in while you consent or in the act of consenting, other people don't take the objective stance towards you. They treat you interpersonally as a full moral member of the community. But then what you consent to can be a sort of objectification. And, and obviously, in, in the medical context, that's uh, very often the case when you're being operated on uh, and you're under anesthesia. Um, certainly, you're not a <laughs> operating moral agent in these cases. Um, so I, I think that's interesting because in the consent debate that shows that in these situations, it's not a clear case where other people just take the objective stance towards you because they only do these things um, because of the prior act where they respected you as a full moral agent. So these kind of these things interact and, and that's a really good point. Yeah. Maybe we should write a paper together about that. <laughs> we could call it the two stage consent argument or something like that, you know, where there's, good, yeah. <laughs> there's the first stage, you know, I, I pulled this example from in my writing sample to, to the graduate programs, I was sort of critiquing uh, this what what I think is a view logically entailed by Christine Korsgaard's work on on you know interpreting the demands of of Kantian morality through through the lens of agency and responsibility, and and I think that her grounding there kind of ties her to a commitment to always hold people responsible in a way that never permits for the objective stance, and you know the the paper is it it tries to justify that, but. But in the concluding section, I kind of retort to that and say, well, there, there should be some really obvious cases in which, you know, all of these conditions that she's reasonably worried about are met, but that we should still be able to view people morally through the objective lens. And, and the case of sort of consenting to a surgery was one that I, I used there where, you know, even and we can make it an even more pristine case where you don't even have to be sort of under anesthesia in a surgery 
you know, I sh showing up to the emergency room, having driven a nail through my hand accidentally or something. I mean, you know, I don't want my surgeon or the ER doctor to kind of just embody all of my terror and, and with me. I want him to really, really kind of distance himself from me, view me as really kind of a malfunctioning object there in some sense, right? Um, and I, I guess this goes to Paul Bloom's work on empathy and the dangers of that. But, but yeah, it seems like there's this really obvious exception to when we should be able to hold people or when we should be able to take the objective attitude towards people where there is that either explicit or in some interesting cases, maybe implicit consent to being viewed under the objective stance. Yes, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and maybe in, in some of these cases, um, as, I, as I said before, the two layers intersect because when you go to the emergency um, uh, unit, um, if, if you're still able, you would consent beforehand. And in, in consenting, you in some way also take responsibility um, for what's being done to you in the sense that if then the, the kind of the physician proceeds and, and helps you, you couldn't complain afterwards and say, well, why did you do this to me? Um, so in, in some way, the physician wouldn't be answerable for certain things anymore. Um, so that's interesting. But yeah, maybe that, that shows that the distinction between the interpersonal and the objective stance uh, can be much more complicated than some than, than we sometimes think. Yeah, it's it's such a it's why I want to study it in in my graduate work. It's such an interesting area. I mean, it's so it touches so many other topics, and it's it is really obviously applicable to everyday interpersonal life in a way that some areas of philosophy cannot be. Um, I, I just find it so interesting. Yeah. So the issue of consent really naturally ties into that popular piece that I was I was going to raise. Um, and if I could, maybe I'll actually just read a, a few paragraphs that you that you begin the article with, because they set up a really, really interesting problem. So so again, the title is COVID. Is it OK to manipulate people into getting vaccinated? So you start. Board Panda, a website that publishes lightweight and inoffensive topics, reports an allegedly true case from uh, true case from the U.S. of a woman who refused to have her child vaccinated. That woman, who is described as a conspiracy theory magnet, provided 15 reasons why vaccines are more harmful than the disease they protect against. When the doctor realized that he wouldn't be able to dissuade her of her beliefs, he decided to present her with another one. The doctor says. Have you considered the possibility that anti-vaccine propaganda could be an attempt by the Russians or the Chinese to weaken the health of the United States population? And so you point out that the doctor deliberately deceived the woman here and probably reinforced her belief in conspiracy theories by pretending to find them plausible himself. But this tactic worked and the mother consented to have her child vaccinated. And this, you know, just raises so many really, really interesting questions. Um, and the, the first one is this seems like it's a pristine case of manipulation. But I was thinking about what we mean by manipulation in more detail. And I was wondering what you thought about some, some potentially necessary conditions to it. So one that I was thinking about is in order to manipulate someone, it, it doesn't strike me that the source of the manipulation has to know or believe that what they're saying is false. Uh, did you agree with that one? Yeah, I think that's right. And so in, in that piece, um, um, 
there might be a more complicated story behind the case. So as, as, as it's reported, the physician only asks a question, right? Uh, so there might be different scenarios. So you could think, well, actually, that's just a rhetorical question. And you could tweak the case in a different way. You could say the question just prompts the woman to think about this again. And ideally, she would realize that there is no evidence for, I, for any of those theories, and she would drop them all. Then think again about the vaccination and consent for good reasons. Um, so that would be the ideal case. But the one that I described is kind of slightly different, where I was assuming, um, kind of reading into the case, that there was also the intention to induce a false belief, to deceive. And you might think the physician asks the question, and then they also show a certain website reinforcing the belief and adding some kind of further fake evidence for it. So that's kind of the thing that I'm uh, here um, addressing. But I think, I think you're right. To manipulate someone, it's not necessary that one also believes that a certain thing is false. And um, in, in this particular scenario, that doesn't have to be the case. I think, um, I mean, often when we talk about manipulation, we use it in a very pejorative way. So manipulation seems to be by definition, something that's wrong. In um, another publication, a paper that I published in field studies, I suggested maybe a more moral neutral understanding where manipulation is something in between rational persuasion on the one hand, so the giving of reasons, and kind of things like coercion on the other, at the other extreme, where you use threats to violate rights, something like that. And manipulation, or in other people said, some kind of irrational influence, it's just a way where you influence a person's decision-making by targeting certain heuristics, biases, mental shortcuts, um, so the debate uh, about uh, so-called nudging is kind of very rich with examples where kind of you can manipulate in this morally neutral sense when uh, in the way in which you present food to a person, uh, in the way in which you present information, for instance, whether you frame it in terms of success rates, 90% uh, success, um, success rate or 10% failure rate, whether you explain something purely verbally or whether you also present pictures, and all these different things. I think um, what's so interesting about manipulation is that um, is that it shows we are not these purely rational creatures. And there's a certain um, um, kind of exaggerated simplicity in our picture of rational agency. We are subject to so many different kinds of influences uh, that are in, in, in some way irrational. So they don't make us irrational in the sense that we would then act contrary to norms of logic or, or becoming consistent in some way, but they are irrational in the sense that the explanation of why we act as we did is no longer a justification. So for instance, when you uh, only do something because it was the default option, so you were just too lazy to switch options. You know, your ins insurance company presents you with a default and you just go with it. Your Netflix account presents you with a default and you just go with it. Um, so that explains why you did it, but surely it doesn't make it any more rational or justified. And I, I guess I was in interested in that um, because um, we're subject to these influences all the time and they are interesting and important for consent and responsibility alike. It really shows that we're open systems too. I mean, we all kind of like to think of ourselves. I think the lay or pre-philosophical view of the self is very much an island, kind of immune from all of these external sources. But 
you know, like you say, we, we really are just open systems. What you said made me think about, I don't remember exactly where this study was, was reported or done, but I think there was a manipulation between two very similar countries, Germany and Austria. And in one of those countries, the default to uh, when you when you sign up for a driver's license, you know, there's the option to be an organ donor or not. And the preset in one of those countries was switched. They, they were both that you had to opt in to being an organ donor and they switched it to you were automatically opted in and you had to explicitly opt out. And it, it changed it from something like 30% to 90% enrollment rate in being a, an organ donor. And that's such an interesting case because you know, you really could look at that as something akin to a very, very soft type of manipulation. But at the same time, you would hope that upon sort of rational reflection, that people would endorse their, their choice in the latter case, where it was, you know, 90% being an organ donor. So I wonder if there's also that sort of Frankfurtian second order desire of, oh, oh I'm actually okay with, with this choice, be it from manipulation or just my own rationality. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So in Austria, it was the case that you had to opt out if you didn't want to be a donor, whereas in Germany, I think it's still the case that you have to opt in, I have to give explicit consent. That's right. And this is also a very interesting case because it shows that some influence or another is inevitable in this case. So something has to be the default. Either it's an opt-in system or an opt-out system. Um, and, and yes, but what's the case with these situations is that many people didn't know that they were organ donors when the legislation changed. They were completely unaware of it. And this makes it difficult for them to endorse that as a choice, let alone reflect on it from kind of a second layer, kind of have the second order volition or preference about it. Um, and, and that naturally leads to um, the discussion what the conditions or requirements should be for the permissible use of these kinds of things particularly when sometimes they are inevitable. So something has to be the default. In some way, uh, the food is ordered in your cafeteria or in your supermarket. In some way, physicians have to present risk information to patients. Um, also, they have to dress in some way. They can't just see their patients naked. And that's also a way of influencing <laughs> them. Um, so you're kind of forced to make these choices uh, and we can't avoid influencing each other in, in, in these ways. And yeah, and, and there's kind of a very, as you can imagine, a very vivid debate about what the criteria should be. Yeah, and that's, I think that's why I agree with you so strongly that manipulation really has an unfair, purely negative connotation. Uh, it, it really can be used for good or for ill. Exactly, and I think we should go away from that um, in many areas. So at the, at the moment, I'm working with a group at the European Commission, and we try to figure out what effective and ethical communication should look like. Um, and kind of the thought here is that we can't just think that political communication uh, is only about reasons. It's only like this sterile um, exchange of reasons. And we are kind of already subject to many different influences, fake news and so on. <clears throat> so uh, it, it's very important. And it, it's, in some way, it seems completely inappropriate if we communicate with each other without <clears throat> acknowledging that we have these uh, other traits about ourselves that make us susceptible to all these notches. Mm. It's sort of a, um, 
there's a danger in denying the type of creatures that we really are. You know, like I said, those open system creatures. It, it I was also, this made me think about, it, there is, you know, if, if we don't acknowledge what you just said, there's also a danger that we could fall into of <sighs> communicating from what Strassen calls the reactive standpoint or the interpersonal standpoint, as you mentioned it, that, that comes along with so many downsides in various situations as well. Um, you know, when we, when we naturally embody that, that reactive stance, either positively or negatively, it, it really does kind of preclude the, the effective use of communication in really, I think, ethically straightforward cases like the organ donation one. I mean, if you're, you know, it, it almost makes you, it almost makes you succumb to the status quo bias, right? Where it's just like, well, if it's, you've always had to opt in, it, then the, if you're, if you're always against manipulation, then it seems like we just can't change this, but you wouldn't really have that problem if, the, if it were the other way around. It, ju it just seems like it's too, it's too gray to be viewed in, in such black and white terms. Yeah, I think I think agree. And and the other aspect that, that you mentioned, did you did you want to say that um, with these reactive attitudes that they could close down some communication? Yeah. So so the the example that your the popular piece really made me think of was so so you know you, you examine it from the point of view of a doctor trying to get his patient to uh, take the COVID vaccine, and that has a lot of of associated issues that get spelled out in consequentialist terms you know you talk about the disqualification view and all of the bad the bad consequences that that could cause but i was also thinking about it in a very just pragmatic interpersonal way and there's actually someone in my family who uh, has refused to get the vaccine and i was thinking about my experiences you know communicating with her just just emphatically just trying to explain every which way that that, that this has to be done you know, this is the rational choice. And at first, you know, I, I was doing all of that from the reactive standpoint. And I think that that was actually a mistake. You know, I was engaging this person in a way in which I would talk to you or I would talk to, you know, my best friend or something where it's really, there's no, um, there, there's no filter through which I'm, I'm viewing the, the information that I'm giving her, or I'm really responding as a very natural non, I don't want to call it manipulation, but, but non, not non-cognitive, but sort of a, a non-calculated way. There was no, there was no calculation, the give and take. And I think that that was a mistake. And if I would have taken much more of an objective stance, you know, who knows, it could have been overdetermined. Nothing could have been able to change this person's mind for all I know, but, but it might've given me a better chance. And so I think that's a, a really obvious danger of the reactive stance. Yeah. That's interesting, but actually, I would encourage you to uh, stick with the reactive attitude. Don't take the objective. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, when we speak to people with different opinions, and I, um, I mean, I, I also think vaccination is a t very good idea, but I, I don't want to say that there aren't any rational kind of reservations about it. And I think speaking speaking to people with a different opinion can be uh, extremely valuable, and that makes me uh, think about whether kind of using nudging techniques necessarily commits you to an objective stance. If we think of ourselves as not only rational, but also in some way irrational agents, then interacting on the full spectrum doesn't mean that we have to leave the interpersonal um, stance in some way. I mean, 
maybe there's a way to to bring these things together obviously at some point if you only work on a person's psyche you will end up with the objective stance but if it's something like a default um or if you're just concerned with creating a situation that is most conducive to a person's decision making i'm not sure whether this is uh this commits you to the objective stance i would say you're still in the inter interpersonal sphere so I, I found this idea in the Nudge book, Taylor and Sunstein's book, so interesting, where they talked about choice architecture. So that's basically the environment, environment in which you make your decisions, and that will influence you. And nudging is basically about designing that environment, being the architect of the environment, so that it's most likely that you'll come up with a good decision. And, and if you see that someone has trouble um, making a good decision or has trouble seeing a particular perspective, um, changing the situation so that they, um, uh, so that it's easier for them to make a more recent decision, um, I think is still the interpersonal stance. But I know that this is controversial and maybe a topic for yet another paper. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem to me like there is a very reasonable way in which the, you, you could very much view the reactive and objective stance on a spectrum as opposed to a difference in kind that you could at least, yeah, I think it's, I think it's obvious that there are at least overlapping areas where you can sort of dial up the reactive stance, you can dial it back a bit. I wonder if, I wonder if something like kind of a pre-commitment going into a conversation is like that, right? Where I... You know, I know what this conversation is going to be about. It's going to be about whether this person should take the COVID vaccine. And I also know that I will be prone to, if I just exist in the 100% of the reactive stance, I will be prone to have conversational practices that aren't super effective. So what I could do then is have this kind of pre-commitment to, you know, if I, if I had the temptation to sort of engage in a, in a practice that's not productive, I would force myself to kind of pause or, or, or just say, you know, you know, let's, let's get a drink of water first or, or something. There's almost like, and that the pre-commitment to pause or to, or to say, you know, let's back up for a second or, or something like that, that pre-commitment does really look like more of a gray zone than wholly the objective stance, because you don't have to, you don't have to view that person as kind of an object of manipulation to have the pre-commitment there. Absolutely. I think I fully agree there. And, and I think the example, let's take a break, but let's have a glass of water is really good because it, uh, maybe that's some kind of cooling off period. Yeah. That um, you, you, at some point you realize when well, we were, we're not making any progress here anymore. Let's just uh, take a quick break and think about it again. And that you might think is also a nudge and some kind of a rational influence because you're basically pushing a person in a situation where kind of the heat of the emotion will fade away then. Uh, and then she will make the, the decision on the basis of different considerations. And psychological research has shown that normally we are very bad at uh, determining how much emotions affect our decision-making. So if you're like a skilled choice architect and you um, kind of slightly nudge people in a situation where these emotions have uh, a lower grip on them, that might actually be a case where the manipulation enhances rationality. Kind of the nudge pushes you in a situation where you're more likely to make a good decision. 
And that's something that um, people in the literature try to explore with kind of the term a nudge to reason. So my mm. colleague Levy at Oxford uh, wrote about this. And uh, I think it, it's interesting to, to explore these connections and, and ways in which these non-standard ways of influencing people's decision-making can enhance rationality. Do you think that that view relies on an implicit notion of sort of that that person's kind of all things considered self or or best self or or best interest view or or sort of rational self right there's a lot of there's a lot of terms for it but th there's a way of thinking about that in which you know that cooling off period kind of allows that person to return to their more reflective self or their more rational self whereas before both parties could have been on this track towards towards the least rational version of of each other and that objective pre-commitment to to pull back in that way sort of allows both parties to get back to their you know true selves for lack of a better term yeah good good absolutely i mean throughout our conversation i've been talking about better decision making a better choice a better decision kind of i've been implying that there is something that's kind of better or worse and then the question is well what is it is it some kind of objective standard is it greater alignment with the true self and these are very difficult questions and you might think uh, at least uh, some of these accounts could be very problematic, paternalistic, condescending. Maybe a person is very emotional and identifies with her or his emotionality and always pushing them into this uh, uh, cool situation where emotions don't play a role. Maybe that's a, a situation where they wouldn't make an authentic uh, decision. So that's that's difficult. And I think that also shows that uh, maybe we should distinguish be between the outcome uh, or a, a decision, kind of the end result, whether that's uh, better or worse. And that's often difficult to say because we would have to rely on certain values and it's not clear whether the person would really embrace those values. And the other is kind of a more procedural notion that we would assume certain kinds of decision-making um, are better than others. So we wouldn't have to rely on uh, as many values as we, as we had to with the kind of outcome focus, um, but still, I think you kind of the point you're pressing is very important because it shows that at one point or another we have to make a value judgment about what's better decision making, what's not as good, um, and that's interesting. And maybe that's right. Maybe we kind of we still have that baggage of the rational creature uh, and try to um, push people into this uniform way of making decisions. Yeah, what made me think about that was I had just recently. Uh, reread Isaiah Berlin's two concepts of liber liberty and kind of thinking about it through this, this reactive and objective lens. And, you know, Berlin in that paper talks about positive freedom and negative freedom, kind of freedom from and freedom to. And it strikes me that in cases like these, you know, Berlin talks about, okay, you know, you can't pretend that there's not a trade-off here. Positive freedoms and negative freedoms will oftentimes come into conflict. And I, I wonder if there's almost an, a... A, an analog in these cases within the concept of one person's self, not even on, you know, Berlin talks about the political uh, side of this where multiple parties will have, will have conflicts, but there's almost that sort that same battle going on inside of one person in these cases, you know, uh, do, do I want the, or does this person, should they want all of the positive freedoms that will come along with getting the COVID vaccine, you know, the freedom to do more things, the freedom uh, to, to have 
uh, less anxiety and then freedom from, you know, potential hospitalization, potential death, things like that. And one thing that is, is Italian, the freedom from is that we want, we generally want to be free from manipulation, but in that Berlin way of thinking about things, I wonder if there is an amount of positive freedom that could, and it seems to me clearly, yes, outweigh that, that negative freedom from manipulation. Yeah, good. Um, I, I've always found Berlin's um, account very interesting, but I always uh, kind of caught myself thinking that we have to think about positive and negative liberty kind of at once and not separate them too neatly, because it seems to me that liberty or freedom is almost always this tripartite relation. So a person is free from X to do Y. Uh, and, and often when we think about freedom from interference, um, we are interested in that because it gives us freedom to do certain things or to realize certain plans. And I agree with you, we, uh, generally we want to be free from manipulation, at least when manipulation is understood as this morally wrong pejorative notion. But as I said earlier, often we just cannot be free from manipulation. Um, it's difficult, um, it's, it's impossible. So um, we have to kind of pick which type of manipulation or irrational influence we wanna be free from. And that can make a difference um, to what we are to our capability as a decision-making or to what kind of things will influence our decision-making. I think the kind of the example that you mentioned earlier with the, with the emotions um, is a good one because maybe some people don't wanna be free from certain emotions. When I make a certain decision, um, it might be important for me that I'm not free from the affection for my loved ones. It would be uh, if I decide a certain kind of important private matter and I kind of disentangle myself from affection and love that could be a very bad thing to do. Um, and so in this case, negative freedom will um, kind of undermine the value that I see in positive freedom in that context. So that, that's kind of one of the reasons why I think this um, general kind of reading or kind of interpretation that I want to um, put onto Berlin, that we have to think of negative and positive freedom at the same time could be very helpful in the manipulation debate as well. Because every time we kind of change something in the decision-making process, keep certain things out of the picture, um, that might also affect what people are then capable of later on. It, it seems like from what I recall, Berlin explicitly said that manipulation, I think he uses the word coercion, uh, has to come from, a, it's, it's gotta be another agent kind of doing these things to you. Do you think about manipulation in these cases in the same way? Does it have to be an agent manipulating you? Yeah. So I think often when we're interested in manipulation or coercion, we're interested in a further question. So in my case, this would be, uh, is consent valid? Was the manipulation or coercion serious or significant enough to undermine consent? Or was it significant enough to undermine responsibility? So and in these cases, it seems often very important whether or not there was an agent or whether it was just background circumstances. So the canonical, canonical example in the consent literature is that if someone threatens you with a gun and says, if you don't consent to this procedure, I'll kill you, surely that's invalid consent. But if you only consent to it because otherwise you would die from an illness, you can give valid consent. So kind of the, the, the set of options is the same, procedure or death, but how the set of options is brought about is very important. So it kind of, I think it depends what your 
normative or moral interests are. Um, and you might also think that you can evaluate um, coercion and manipulation from different perspectives. And I recall that Michael Garnett had a very interesting paper in Ethics where he talks about the wrong and the bad about coercion. So the idea being that the bad is an axiological term. So it's about value, kind of leading a good life. It's about flourishing. Whereas kind of the wrong is a deontic category. It's about um, rights violation, obligations. And sometimes kind of coercion can diminish your flourishing, even when it comes from background conditions, like having an illness that kind of forces you to consent to that operation, it's bad. But it's not kind of wrong in the deontic sense that would undermine the validity of consent. Uh, and so these two uh, categories, I think, are quite interesting because they can also apply to manipulation. You can think, well, if you're interested in what makes your life go better or worse, what undermines your flourishing or advances it, then you can have these axiological categories and think that it doesn't really matter whether it's a person intentionally manipulating you or whether it's just a very unfortunate choice situation. But once we're interested in kind of the more specific deontic questions about valid consent, responsibility, blame, punishment, then it might make a big difference, whether it was the circumstances uh, or whether there was an intentional wrongdoing in the background. Yeah, that's super interesting because, you know, also locally or pragmatically, if there is a, a another agent that is directly responsible, that's also someone upon which we can cast our blame, right? And so that that's an obvious way in which it would remove the blame from, from the person in question. Uh, and, and, what, and what you said makes me think about, you know, they're, they're the, the famous Frankfurt cases, um, and a huge kind of subliterature on those, but but the same thing could be applied to the case of consent, where you know if um, if if someone holds the gun to my head and say you have to consent to this operation, and I had no intention of doing that, if they hadn't held the gun to my head, well, that's an obvious case of of non-consent on my part. But if I had shown up to the doctor's office already, you know, planning to consent to the operation because I intended to get this this solved. And then someone holds a gun to my head and says, you know, you have to, I'll shoot you if you don't consent to this. Well, I'll say, oh, sure. Like that has no, that has no um, effect on whether I was going to do it or not, because, you know, I, I had already pre-committed to doing that. So in that case, you know, obviously we would want to hold the coercer to, at fault for other things, but among them can't really be that he influenced your choice to get the surgery. Yeah, I fully agree. And I think this is a very relevant passage in Frankfurt's work. Um, and I, so it, it shows that coercion sometimes doesn't succeed. Uh, so often people would say coercion is a success term. And that means that um, a per the coerced person does something because of the threat and not just temporarily subsequent to the threat. Um, but here's kind of a complication. Suppose you decide to go to the hospital and consent to the operation anyway then the coercer comes along, uh, you get really afraid, um, you lose your initial motivation and you only cons consent to avoid being shot by the guy. So in that case, um, I would say um, coercion invalidated consent. But in the case that you described and the case that Frankfurt described, the threat was just uh, not effective. It didn't affect decision-making and surely in these cases, um, consent can remain valid. 
it's also interesting because it shows that something like uh, counterfactual dependence is not needed. So um, it's not needed that um, a person wouldn't have consented in the absence of a threat. Okay, so so you're saying then, so if if the if the counterfactual is not what what the issue hinges on, then in the case where I think it, you mentioned a second, you show up intending to consent to the operation, the gunman then you know scares you senseless to the point where your the the local decision switches from it's not actually due to you wanting the surgery, it's now wholly due to avoiding being shot. I'm just thinking the counterfactual there is kind of hard to grasp because I'm thinking, you know, so, so you're still at the hospital, the gunman is arrested. It seems to me like even if your, your motivation had wholly switched to avoid being shot, now the threat is taken away. I, you know, just speaking for myself, I, I would still go ahead and, and get the, uh, and get the operation because then it's just my, my reasons are kind of allowed to resume function again. So yeah. in terms of the counterfactual there, I guess it's kind of hard to, it's, it's hard to grasp that because yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's your, your, it's, it's almost like it's washing away your original reason, but not through other reasons. It's just due to just, just an overwhelming cause of reasonable fear there. Right, yeah, and I mean, it's definitely possible that kind of the cursor gets arrested, you get back to your initial motivation and you can consent, sure. Um, I think it all comes down to what your actual reasons or motivations are for consenting. And if they are um, avoiding the threatened harm, then your consent wouldn't be valid. But I mean, there might be further complications. And there are also kind of cases, kind of deviant cases where... Uh, someone tries to deceive or threaten you, you kind of notice it, think it's kind of charming and then consent anyway. So if someone impersonates uh, their twin brother to obtain consent to sex, the other person instantly realizes it is, but thinks, well, that's kind of funny, you know, and they always had a kind of a thing for the other person. And then they think they consent, they just play along, you know? Yeah. <laughs> In this way, you could think the attempt to deceive caused the consent in the way that it actually led to the chain of events that eventually arrived at consent. Uh, but still, it's um, arguably, I think, I think quite plausibly, consent can, can be valid in these cases because the person uh, knew about that attempt and they weren't taken in by the deception. Yeah, that's a great case because it seems, it seems like what is relevant to consent there is the the um, the amount or type or maybe even specific pieces of information that the person has they they know that it's not the right twin uh, or the twin that that they are presenting themselves as and that seems like it is the crucial piece of knowledge there where you know it's all so the counterfactual is obviously a case of non-consent where if they didn't realize oh this is twin a not twin b that's an obvious case of of non-consent due to misinformation or disinformation but yeah as you point out as you point out my, my intuition does switch if they realize oh this is twin b presenting himself as twin a and, and so yeah i'll go along with it yeah I Victor Tadros has an interesting discussion of such cases in his books, uh, Wrongs and Crimes. And um, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, I wonder if 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 agree if if both parties or or the relevant party, there's this term in the literature, you know, all relevant empirical information or, or something like that. You know, if the if the person has all of the facts that a kind of rational third party would deem relevant to that case, then they have all of the information required to consent. Yeah, that sounds quite demanding. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, it, it definitely does, because you can imagine a lot of disagreement on what is relevant information there. Absolutely. Uh, and, and often, I would say, in, every, in our everyday lives, we um, make ill-judged decisions, uh, ill-advised decisions, ill-informed decisions, and often we consent for bad reasons. And um, it, it kind of, I think it would be implausible to say that in all of these cases, there's no real consent. Um, so the idea that I'm kind of developing in my book on consent about voluntary consent is that there are kind of certain interpersonal norms, kind of the norms uh, that um, determine the relation between the consent giver and the consent receiver. So they kind of they're in this activity of consenting together, and there are some things that are just part of the game and others that aren't. Uh, and in certain contexts, it's not needed that we know everything or, or everything that's relevant as long as the parties. Uh, treated each other in accordance with certain norms, and, and I think in the in the medical case, it would be um, absurd to say that the patient should know all what's empirically re relevant about the operation. Um, so they have to go to medical school first. Um, yeah, yeah, you could never know all that. Yeah, you can never know all that. So in order to be a proper patient, you have to go to med school first, and then you know it becomes even more expensive to be a patient. <laughs> yeah, it becomes very expensive. Yeah, no, you're right. That is an obvious reductio to to the idea that that they would have to know all relevant information. I wonder if I wonder if someone could respond to that. Um, you know, the the details of the procedure aren't relevant information. Then um, I, that, but then, but then, you know, I wonder how much of that argument is purely linguistic. Yeah, why would they say it's not relevant? They would have to say because it doesn't undermine consent, but then the circuit is yeah, yeah. Because that's what we want to establish. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, it, it, this is also a very intricate debate. Um, what is really relevant information? What kinds of risks um, do people know about when they are patients? What kind of alternatives? Mm. Um, Yes, that's kind of, and people have very different views about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I realize we're, we're starting to come up on almost an hour. And I wanted to ask you, um, just, just because it's, it's a project you're currently working on. So the, the book project that we mentioned, uh, the, the working title is called Answering Others. And you say that you, in this, in this book, you're going to put forth what you call the legal turn, which was interesting to me. So it's the idea that an inquiry into legal responsibility can guide an inquiry into moral responsibility, which is typically reverse from how people and and admittedly I have always tended to think about that. So, what's your what's your um, aim in that book, and how are you planning to do that? Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I I also thought in the past it's the other way around. The kind of moral philosophy is about the fundamental truth, and the law is just this blunt instrument and kind of subject to peculiar constraints. And if there's something special about the law, it's because of its peculiarity, but not because it tracks some fundamental truth. But then I had some doubts about it. And I thought that the law has a, a very interesting approach to responsibility um, that's different from philosophy, 
but which might still be relevant more generally. So I think in philosophy, um, people think about responsibility individually or naturalistically, though responsibility is very often mostly a function of an agent psychology, what they knew, what capacities they had, and so on. Or it's very often a question about whether determinism is true or not, or whether it's compatible with free will. Um, so it's kind of this naturalistic picture. It's also a very individualistic picture. It's mostly about the responsibility of, of the agent. Uh, and the law, it's a bit different because <clears throat> they think of it um, uh, as responsibility socially or relationally, functionally. So it's kind of part of a societal practice. It's not just about, it's not just about an agent psychology. It has to do a certain job in different parts of the law. And that job is different, whether we look at the criminal law or tort law. And I thought this was interesting, that questions of responsibility could be asked differently. Um, and then also in the law, it's not so uh, individualistic because uh, lawyers ask about um, when we are responsible for others, like vicarious responsibility or liability, uh, complicity. And that's something that philosophers have not been as, in, as interested in as uh, lawyers. And I thought maybe <clears throat> there's something that we can learn from the law because it addressed questions of responsibility differently. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to take some specific selected legal doctrines, for instance, vicarious responsibility, but also things like strict responsibility um, and see if they tell us something that's true about responsibility more general. I'm at an early stage and I have to admit kind of legal turn sounds like this big thing, like the linguistic turn. Uh, and I'm a bit boasting here. It's a bit like an exaggeration. I completely admit that that's for the purpose of advertising the idea. Um, <laughs> but kind of that's, that's the, the thought that it's interesting to see how the law approaches responsibility and I think it could be relevant more generally. Yeah, I'm very excited. I hope that that is, um, is published and published soon because that sounds really, really interesting. You're right. I, that's not how, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really not how the, the topic of moral responsibility is presented in, you know, any introduction class to it or, or just even in any high level readings about it. I mean, this is just not how it's viewed, but yeah, you're right. There, there are other concerns that could be easily imported back from, from the legal domain into the moral one. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, but it, it'll remain controversial and we'll see how it goes. Um, sure. But there are some, some other people interested, I think, in the topic as well. And um, so as, as a very recent addition to what I'm doing, I'm editing a route that handbook on responsibility. And we'll have one section on responsibility in the law um, okay. where some tremendous people kind of write about what what could be relevant more generally. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about what, what's happening there. That's, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll come back to you as a critic. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that sounds really, really interesting. Is, so that's a, um, the Routledge uh, edited volume is, is under construction now? Yeah, so I finalized the table of contents. I secured commitments from all the authors and now they're in the process of, of writing it. Um, and, and kind of for some of the listeners to the podcast, it'll be different from the handbook that OUP just published or is about to publish. So OUP um, looks at the last 30 years of the, on the, of the debate on responsibility um, and kind of, so Derek Pariboom and Dada Nelkin are the editors and the um, 
handbook, the selection of topics in some way reflects their very important work. Uh, but I wanted to um, provide a slightly broader approach, include some historical um, chapters, and also in particular, the ethics, politics, and the law of responsibility. Okay. Yeah, I, I, a few episodes before this one, I talked to Paul Russell about both yes. an earlier paper of his, but he's also a contributor to the, to the yes. OUP handbook. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, Max, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, if you could, I'll leave links to all of the pieces in particular that we've talked about, but is there anywhere that people can go uh, to find out more about you and your work? Um, so I've got a personal website that I keep updated and I'm always happy um, to hear from people if they have any interest and they can certainly email me my email address on the website as well. Um, so that's probably the best place to look at. Okay, great. I'll leave all of the links in the description below. Uh, and if you could stay on the line for just a second, but I thank you again. This was a ton of fun. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. Okay, I want to thank Max again for joining me. I really, I really enjoyed that talk. It was a ton of fun. And we talked about some new ideas for both of us, I think. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. So if you want to support this show, keep it going help it grow you can share it on social media or uh, twitter specifically you can rate it on apple podcasts like or subscribe via youtube or your rss feed and you can also get in contact with me you can email me at plato's cave podcast at gmail.com and follow me on twitter at jordan underscore c underscore myers and as always thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave <laughs>